Behold the voice of God. For those of you who don't know me officially, my name is Amanda Waller. And I am Aaron Mosh, your host of Task Force X. What, are we some kind of suicide squad? Well, yeah, that and... Checkmate. Task Force X is a podcast that tells the stories of John Ostinger's Suicide Squad and Paul Kupperberg's Checkmate from the late 80s, early 90s. I want to build a team of some bad people who can do some good. And that's what Suicide Squad is. While Checkmate is a team of good people doing some good. My mission here is to chronicle each and every title and all the books that Suicide Squad and Checkmate appeared in during that era. We're the U.S. government. (laughs) You're going to start a blog and expose us? Well, a blog and a headcast, Amanda. Those scumbags are trying to screw me. Not at all, Amanda. Just trying to help everyone else discover the joy of the Suicide Squad and Checkmate. Anywho, hope you guys have as much fun with these comics as I did when I first read them. Oh, so many years ago. Mother... That's enough of that, Amanda. Let's go and start the show. I didn't believe the stories. Nobody does. Remember, I'm watching. I see everything. Welcome, squadmates, to episode 58 of Task Force X. The big Phoenix Gambit's over. The Suicide Squad has undergone some rearrangement, possibly. We're going to find out. Uh, Not this episode. Uh, this episode, we have some Origins of Digger to get into. But before we get to that, we have returned with Checkmate. Yes, this is a Checkmate and Suicide Squad podcast, not just Suicide Squad. Contrary to what you might have thought for the last couple of months. So we're going to look at Checkmate number 28, first of all. This was cover dated June of 1990. On sale date was April the 24th, 1990. You could buy this one for $1.50. Again, it was about 50 cents more than the regular titles because it was the the, uh, better format, the better paper, better printing, and all that good stuff. The title of this issue is called Night Court. That's night with a K. Written, as usual, by the wonderful and talented Paul Kupperberg. Penciler was Tom Grindberger. Inker, John Stapma. Letterer, Jasper Saldino. Colorist, Juliana Fritter. The editor was Jonathan Peterson. And the cover was done by Tom Grinberger. Let's go and take a look at the issue itself. Again, as I've been doing recently, I have not been uh, giving a synopsis for the issue because someone told me that I'm stupid for doing that. No, not I'm stupid for doing that, but that's the way I do my cover, coverage anyways. I kind of give a synopsis. I'm going over it, so no sense doing both. So I'm doing it without giving a synopsis. We'll see how that works out. Uh, Let me know what you guys think. Do you like it better with the synopsis or like I'm doing it now without a synopsis? So Checkmate 28. This cover has Bishop on the front. He's got a handful of guards that he's throwing around. There's other guards and cops around him uh, with guns shooting at him, hitting at him. Checkmate logos on the side. At the bottom corner, it says Breakout from Cell Block D. Um, this is a decent cover. It's a little heavily inked for my taste, but like I said, I prefer Checkmate with the more, as I call it, the four color, not, not quite as heavily inked. Uh, this works better in my opinion on Suicide Squad, but it's not a bad cover. Don't get me wrong. It's just not, it's not as memorable. And I think partly because I say it's a little heavy on the inks for me. I, I don't particularly like a lot of heavy inks on, on books. So that's one thing that threw me off from the whole milestone thing when it came out back in the 90s. The, the ads I saw for a lot of it and the covers, a lot of that was heavily inked. 
in my opinion, overly inked. And I just don't care for that for the most part. So, but it's a decent cover. I will give it, it's not horrible. I've seen worse. Uh, going to the story itself, we start out with uh, Harry's, I believe it's his oldest son, Matthew, who was shot, if you remember right, again, it's been a couple of months since we've covered Checkmate, but Checkmate was uh, Harry's sons were kidnapped. They were being used to get back to get him. Uh, he was able to free his sons, but in doing so, uh, Matthew, one of his boys, was shot. So we're picking up after that. Matthew's in the operating room. They're working on him. Again, this splash page, we show Harry on the table. His you know insides are opened up, and there's doctors working on him. And like on the window on the outside, we see Harry and his wife with several guards or police or whoever these guys are, guns pointed at Harry and his wife. Uh, again, it's just a very way, a very dynamic way to start this issue. Because again, we the doctors are talking how you know it's a mess. Uh, he's hanging in there, but it wouldn't take more time than necessary because you know it could kill him. Meanwhile, outside, his father's in a life and death situation also. So I like the juxtaposition that Matthew's fighting for his life on the operating table while his father is, is in quotes, fighting for his life against the guards outside. And again, not really guards. They're, they're uh, soldiers, I guess. And then we cut to the next page where we find out that they're arresting Stein for everything he did the last couple of issues, uh, using checkmates, resources to free his son. And... Again, we do have a little nice little recap here from Jonathan, the editor, saying that Harry's son, Matthew, was shot during the crossfire of rescue attempt last issue. And basically, they're upset with Harry because he broke Jacques Renard out of Checkmate Security and used him to help free his sons. And against this guy called Niles Dark, who kidnapped him. So this issue kind of takes place right after last episode, because last issue, last episode, last issue, because last issue was getting, they were saying, uh, Harry Stein, you're under arrest. And here they're, they're going further in depth with that. So, and not only did he steal the prisoner, but they lost him in doing the trade. And as he's, as the guys are trying to arrest Harry, uh, they tell him that, you know, still wants his hide. And, uh, John, uh, Jonathan, uh, Gary Washington, one of the Checkmate Knights, comes walking out on, on crutches. <laughs> hey, who threw the party? We got to invite me. And the main guy that's arresting Stein's like, you stay out of this, Washington. You knew you were going against orders by helping Stein. You can kiss your career goodbye. <laughs> and, and Gary's like, oh, yeah? Well, you can kiss my... And about this time, they haul Harry out before he can say anything further. And uh, Harry's telling you, know, cool off, this is my fight. Keep it on Natalie. I'll handle this. That's my problem. And it leaves his wife. Actually, I guess his ex-wife. I refer to her as his wife. But as we've discussed in previous issues, they're divorced. And, and she was kind of using his job against him with the kids. So this shows that even though they're divorced and, and she's not happy with Harry's career choice, that's part of why they end up getting divorced because he's always away from home and she's just not happy. She still has some feelings for Harry because again, as you know, they're, they're hauling him off. She's like, Oh my God, what kind of work has Harry gotten himself into? What kind of world has he made for himself? And we see she's leading him against Gary 
as he consoles her over, you know, again, her son's in the operating room. Uh, they don't know what's going on with him. Uh, her ex-husband is being led away in cuffs, arrested for basically freeing her son. Or not, yeah, freeing her, both her sons, actually. So, and again, he may have not gone about the right way, but seeing how time was limited. And again, if I was in Harry's position and, and I had his resources, and again, if I was in Harry's shoes, I would probably do whatever it takes to free my kids too. So I, I can't blame Harry in the slightest. And then we got to some headquarters of the direction of General de la Sécurité, S to where, where, whatever, in Paris, France, where Bishop comes blasting in. And uh, here on page, uh, not numbered, because that'd make my life easy. I think it's pages four and five. We see Bishop come crashing through the wall, and he's blasting these cops that are in here. Uh, they're dropping their coffee. And one, one guy's got his, his coffee cup. It looks like coffee. Uh, it's like one of those plastic or foam coffee cups inside a plastic little cup thing. But again, it's the French. What do you want? And so he's attacking all these guards. And there's, there's what, four guards on this one page? I was going to start counting again. Uh, so Chad could give me a hard time. And he blasts through the floor as the cops are shooting him. And they're bouncing right off of him. And he takes out three guards down below. And as he's walking through these cells, all these prisoners are, the guards are down, quick, free us over here. No, no, me. And we're like, Please, won't you help an old man? I'll pay you anything. And Bishop's like, rotten hell, old timer. You couldn't afford me. And then Bishop just rips the bars off of the cage of uh, this guy that he's freeing, Andre Mazarin. <laughs> Andre's like, mon dear, such strength. And Bishop's like, how nice to meet you. What a pleasant surprise, a coincidence. You're just the man I was looking for. And Andre's like, to to get me out of here, yes? Because he's not quite sure at this point. If he's too much of a liability, his his people, his employers, whatever, may decide he's not worth the risk and off him. So, but, so Bishop's like, but of course, Monzor, I'm taking you to someone who wants very much to talk to you. And I like here on the bottom of page... Uh, five, six, something like that. As Bishop goes flying away, Andre's sitting on his back. It looks like he's got, yeah, he's got his legs up over his shoulders, holding on. It's just an interesting what panel, the way that, that uh, Bishop is carrying Andre away from the prison. It's an interesting look. Cause usually they're either, he's either holding the guy or under the arms, or he's holding the the guy would be holding onto the Tin Man's back, but here it's almost like he's riding like a horse or something. It's it's maybe chuckle when I saw it. I'm like, what? The, oh, okay, I see what he's doing there. <laughs> and again, the artwork in this book. I haven't talked much about the artwork itself. I'm enjoying the artwork. It doesn't appear to be as heavily inked as the cover is. This is the artwork I like in the book, so there's no complaints at all about the art. It's it's good artwork, especially it's it's standard checkmate artwork which again i really enjoy so and then like i said the writing in this is just magnificent uh then we cut to, and again kind of like over in the larry hama gi joe books we're covering uh there a lot of times paul kupperberg will will put a lot of detail a lot of stuff a lot of action going on and that's what's going on here because we have harry getting arrested for in quotes freeing 
uh, Renard Bishop. We got Bishop freeing this guy from the pr- uh, French prison. And I do like, again, the juxtaposition there. The juxtaposition. Hard word for me to say. Of On this one page, Harry being arrested and taken to jail. And the next page, we have Bishop blasting into the, the French police headquarters here. Not headquarters, but uh, wherever they're keeping Andre at. And breaking him out of jail. So I do like how one guy's getting arrested. Another guy's getting freed. It's a very interesting uh, way they've got way that Paul wrote that scene. Uh, Paul is a fantastic writer. And then we cut to the South Pacific of the headquarters of Victor Cipher, the guy that's been showing up the last few issues. And again, he's in a business meeting talking about uh, the production rate and their profits and all that. When he gets interrupted by uh, Pierre, I guess his his uh, whatever y'all call him, the guy that's helping keep his appointments and all that. Pierre tells him that his next appointment's ready. And basically, this is just a little interlude, if you will, to catch uh, the cypher guy up as to what's going on as far as Bishop has freed uh, Andre from prison. Again, you wouldn't don't really need these couple pages here other than just to show that Cypher's still involved and that he is... Uh, I don't know how to phrase it. He's part, he's still part of the scheme. Cause other than that, these couple of pages don't tell us a lot in the background. We have the news running, uh, talking about how there's an attack on the Paris, uh, direction general. And there's a prisoner that was a freed. So again, it's an interesting pages. I, I like this again. It gives us a little more, look at one of the guys behind the scenes, if you will. But I mean, if Paul needed to, he could have skipped this, but I'm not telling Paul what to do. Cause again, Paul's a much, much better writer than I am. So, <laughs> and then we cut over to uh, where we at the Boston convention center where we find checkmate agent, John was it John. Yeah. John Reed, who is watching, uh, apparently there's some guy here that's got some sort of chip that they're trying to keep an eye on. And again, he's got these pair of glasses, sunglasses on that while they look like ordinary glasses, they're able to detect the silicon and the hidden chips. And I do like here at the bottom of the page, page eight, page nine, we had the splash page. So it's probably page nine or so where John ducks into a, a supply closet and, and kind of does a Superman shirt rip. And again, this guy with the glasses on, he's got brown, brown hair compared to dark Clark's black hair, but it's kind of like Superman ducking into the supply closet and changing. And he, we show him something in the closet and he's ripping his shirt open to reveal the checkmate costume underneath it. And again, he, as he does, he's like, all right, now the exchange has been made. It's time from some action as John Reed night extraordinaire. And again, I just do. I love, again, I love with Superman. I love a good shirt rip and I'm getting that here in checkmate. So it's just a nice homage to Superman and Clark Kent. So, and then we get the outside where we show the night John on top of the building and he's watching as the, the guys he's chasing are getting a car leaving. And he's like, we know there he goes now. Hmm. Guy's got a pretty healthy head start on me. 
good thing I know a shortcut. And we see the knight just jumping off the side of the building, landing on top of the car, vaulting off, and landing in front of the car. Again, I love this scene of the knight. Again, I love the Checkmate Knight's costumes, as I've said, time after time. But I do love how the knight is... They show the knight in they show the different poses of the knight as he falls off the or leaps off the roof, lands on the car, and just leaps himself in front of the car. And the guy that's in the passenger seat's like, never mind, just keep going. Over him if you must. And again, another nice page here. I wish these pages were numbered easier to see. I think it's page eleven, I'm guessing. Uh, we see the knight pole vaulting over the car. As the car, we hear that higher screeching. And uh, again, he's all, somebody told me they weren't going to cooperate. Well, yeah, well, I can play it that way too. As he's pole vaulting over the car, using his pole, his uh, pole, of course, his staff to leap over the car. And again, I love this. This is a great scene, great page. It's a splash page from behind the car showing uh, Reed vaulting himself over it and then pulling his staff up close to him and then just doing a spin as he lands on his feet behind the car. This page itself is worthy enough to be a poster, in my opinion. I think it's just a great image of the night. We get a clear shot of the night's costume, the, the yellow and black, with the, or the blue and yellow, whichever it's supposed to be, with the night symbol on the, co- on the front of it. It's just a great, great page. And in doing so, the car loses control because the ground's wet and he flies up beside another car, flips over and crashes upside down. And as Reed gets to the car to get, find out who's in there, all he finds is the driver, the, the courier, the guy that had the chips has gotten away. And also we are police sirens, the rain's coming down on him. So again, he's like, I got to get out of here. I don't want to be, uh, wind up as a guest of the local PD. And then we show the guy that was in the, the car, the courier, who I believe is supposed to be Flowers, the assassin from the last couple of issues, uh, says he made it. He's barely rolled out while he was vaulting over the car. And he's like, there's going to be payback for this, mister. Count on it. And I, I wish that, again, either Paul had written this in or the artist had put in there. had We had seen him leaping out or something. Because on that lovely splash page, splash page? Splash page I was talking about. We see two shadowy figures in the car. Uh, we can't make who they are, but we see one in the passenger seat, one in the driver's seat. And then the next time we just see the car driving up over another car, flipping over. So I, I kind of wish they would have drawn the door open a little bit or something to show we could have looked back and seen he, he wasn't there. But again, that's just a minor nitpick. As we've said before on these, on my shows, these books are so wonderful. Sometimes you just got to pick, you know, the nittiest picks to nitpick at. So, but yeah, it's fantastic. And then we go to the next page where again, it's just a, a the top of the page. We have Harry being yelled at by Steele. And again, Steele's like, you know, the Senator McRaven wants your butt. And still like, I don't know what I, sh- what I can do to keep you from getting it. I'm not even sure if I should try. Are you listening? What's more important? What's going on here? You know, your, your job's in jeopardy, basically. What could be more important than that? And still, uh, Harry's like, my son still. I pray to God that he's going to be all right. And again, in his position, I would be the same way. My job be hung. I, I don't care about that. 
I'm, I'm worried about my poor son who's in the hospital basically because of me and my job. And I don't know if he's going to live or what's going to happen with them. So yeah, my, my, I'm not so much worried about losing my job at this point. I'm worried about my son. And again, as a father who has had a son in the hospital, uh, I'm not sure if I've talked about that here or not, but when my oldest son, uh, Tim, who, who's 29 now, when he was in first grade, I want to say, kindergarten, he had what's called an AVM where the blood vessels in his brain started leaking. And he passed out and we had to rush him to the hospital and they had to do emergency brain surgery twice on him to seal the blood off from leaking out of his brain, basically. So he was in the hospital for a while. There was touch and go. We didn't know what, how was gonna ha- what was going to happen with him. So ha- ha- being a father that's had a son in the hospital, I completely empathize with Harry. I, I see where he's coming from. And again, yeah, much like him, I wouldn't be so much worried about my job. I'd be more worried about my kid, you know, what's going on with him. So you got my, you got my support, Harry. And then we cut back to the hospital where we find out that apparently they extracted the bullet, but apparently there's been severe damage to the spinal cord. And they say, we think it may be irreversible, which means that he won't be able to walk again. So again, well, and Harry doesn't know this yet, but his ex-wife is finding out that, his son is alive, their son's alive, but he may not ever walk again, which, you know, especially for a kid, is heartbreaking. So, and then we cut to Denver, Colorado, where we find uh, Winston, one of the checkmate knights that they suspected might be Bishop for the couple issues until we figured out who it really was. Uh, Cecilia Campbell, Cecilia? I don't think that's her name. Uh, her first name is Kayla, 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 Kayla Campbell, one of the gals at Checkmate, uh, she comes visits Winston and like Winston's doing his, his flowering. He's got a, a trowel or whatever in his hand and he hears someone behind him. So he turns around quickly because again, he's a Checkmate knight. He's got those reflexes and he's got that, that spade or whatever in his hand. And Kayla's like planning on turning my soil, Winston. And if that's not a sexual window, I don't know what is. But because again, Kayla's a very hot chick. Winston's a good-looking guy. So, yeah, I mean, I would like to turn her soil, but that's another story entirely. And Kayla's trying to figure out what's going on with him. That you know he hasn't been in the office for a while. And Winston's a little miffed that they question his loyalty because again, as I talked about, they thought he was bishop. So that's got him a little, little pet off that they thought he was a traitor, and even though he, he put his life on the line to prove that he wasn't. So he's upset about that. And, and part of me understands where he's coming from because it sucks having people not trust you, especially people that should. But on the other hand, I can't say as I blame checkmates because again, they didn't know who the trader was at the time. And Winston, I want to say Churchill, Winston, there was some very, circumstantial evidence pointing that it may be him. So I can't, again, I can't blame checkmate for not trusting him as full as he wanted them to, because again, it was a checkmate night that had been turned and that was working against him. So you can't really blame, or at least in my opinion, you can't really blame checkmate for, for not trusting anybody when they had evidence pointing that maybe he may be the bad guy. So 
as much as it may suck. And again, I will say this to borrow a page from Shag's book and one of Shag's line, Kayla Campbell is hot. But let's go move on from her and, and Winston. Again, so Winston's basically, uh, they're, as they're talking, he's basically asked her out for dinner. Because again, she, you know, he's like, well, is coming here part of your job also? And she's like, oh, coming here was entirely personal. Hmm, interesting. Perhaps you care to tell me more about it over dinner? So again, I do like, it looks like they're setting Kayla and uh, Winston here up for maybe something in the future. We'll find out. Again, I don't remember. It's been a while since I've read these issues. Uh, we'll see what happens. And then we cut over to Switzerland, where we have, it's the PAX Institute in Geneva, Switzerland, where we have the home of Peacemaker, a.k.a. Christopher Smith. And this isn't the stupid, goofy Peacemaker that you see on HBO Max. Again, I don't know if I complain about that here. I'm sure I have. I watched the first episode or so of Peacemaker, and to my, I know a lot of people love that show, but to me, it's complete 180 from this character. I wish they would have gave him a different name, a different costume, made a different character. In my opinion, they kind of ruined Peacemaker and Vigilante also, because what they're doing on those shows, neither one of them is Peacemaker or Vigilante in my book, but I'm not here to complain about HBO Max at the moment. I'll do that some other time. Uh, Peacemaker. So again, he's in his, his regular identity, and we've got his his assistants, I guess, the people that help him out. And they're talking about how uh, Andre was was freed, and how they're wondering if they should inform Peacemaker or Christopher Smith of this. And Christopher Smith in here, he's he's very tightly wound. And again, as we've talked about, he in here he's haunted by the ghost of his father, whether it's an actual ghost haunting or whether it's a a just a mental uh, a mental thing he's going through, and he's just uh, seeing visions of his dad. His dad's not really there. I don't know. I forget if it ever got revealed which way it plays out. But Christopher Smith, the peacemaker, is very wound very tight in here. And that's one thing I didn't like about him in the Suicide Squad movie and in the Peacemaker series is they're making him much more of a goofy character. And that's not Peacemaker. He's the complete opposite of that. And so uh, the one gal, Diabo, whatever her name is, is trying to tell him, well, you need to calm down. You need to you know relax a little bit. And, and Peacemaker, Christopher's like, you keep trying to erect a wall around me. Protect me as I was a child. I'm just tired of everyone else trying to ruin my run my life. And uh, Diablo is his doctor walking around saying, Christopher, you've been doing so well. If you excite yourself, you're going to do the damage we made. You know, let's talk this out. In the background, we see his, the ghost of his father. It's kind of like a Sir Pratt image of him going, Ja, ja, Frylon doctor, talk to Christopher all you wish. But I assure you, you will never take my boy away from me. Ha, 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 ha. And that's another change they made in the show was that instead of being a dead Nazi, uh, Peacemaker's dad was a very much alive white supremacist. And I, I, I don't know. I like it's an interesting way of twisting the concept because, again, his dad is still a major league jerk, in my opinion. But I, I like this this uh, concept of his dad is his dad a a ghost or is it just Christopher imagining this? I do like the way this is set up better here. Of course, in my opinion, 
Uh, Paul, I don't know who writes the Peacemaker TV series, but Paul is a much better writer than whoever does that, in my opinion. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, back over in the Senate office in Washington, again, we get Harry being yelled at by the senator and still, Starge still is kind of backing him up. He's like, well, you know, there was an unorthodox, unorthodox course of action. And basically this is coming down saying that Harry may lose being, they may fire Harry if his head of checkmate. And Harry's like, what? And I, I don't know, actually Stein's like, what? And I don't know why Stein, I'm sorry, still is so surprised that they're going to f- talk about firing him. I mean, especially if they're upset with the way he did things and they're calling him to Washington to call him to the carpet. Yeah, firing him may be the, the least of the action they're going to do against him, but we'll see. And then we're back in Boston where we have the police investigating the car crash. And a guy named Wazotsky is from the federal government, shows up and he finds out there's an Interpol agent there, Inspector Carl Schiller. And that's the guy from the last couple of issues from Interpol that's been investigating uh, flowers and everything that's going on with his end. And again, the the federal guy is like, confused inspector? Nobody told me your organization was involved here. He's like, I was not aware I, I was not aware I needed permission. Uh, now, what branch do you say you represent? And, and the, uh, what's the name, Wazotsky just says, I didn't say. <laughs> and again, uh, Carl, the, the Interpol guy, is telling him that it's regarding a certain Mr. Flowers and Wazowski's like, uh, this is not the place to talk about that. Let me catch you at your hotel. <laughs> and then the the unknown uh, FBI federal guy, his name's Jack. He goes walking over to a red car that pulls up that's being driven by Jack Reed, our checkmate nine. I like this. As Jack gets in the car, he's like, Reed, I thought I told you, I thought I told you to get some inconspicuous. Jack? For me, this is going to be inconspicuous. <sighs> Just drive, okay? You got a boss as they take off. Uh, again, so much going on in the story. We're still only on, we're on page 19, page 20, somewhere around there, maybe 21. And we still got more story going on. We have, we're back at Checkmate headquarters. And we have Blackthorn coming up telling Barney, one of the guys on monitor duty, that uh, Kelly Campbell... Kayla? Kayla Campbell wants them in her office. And she's like, I'll go ahead and watch the monitors for you. Go ahead and do that. And again, we just saw Kayla talking to Winston just a few minutes ago. So we know that she's not in the office. Did they jump ahead? What's going on here? You know, why, why, why is, you know, Kayla, Kayla supposedly wanting this guy? Couldn't find out. It's just Blackthorn wanting to get a hold of his monitor, his computer. We don't know what she's looking for yet. She's searching some information. Because, again, we cut away back to the headquarters of Victor Cipher. And so I guess this is why we had to have it earlier, because it ties back into here, where Cipher is watching some, uh, these guys working on these robotic suits. And these suits are trying to copy the the bishop armor, I guess. And they're trying to make it so they can link up the suits with the guys or whoever's driving its neural network so they can mentally command the suits. And as they're watching what's going on, one of the subjects 
He starts freaking out. He says something's wrong. We see, and again, I don't know if, I don't, it looks like he's on fire almost, but I think it's just supposed to be the neural energy, if you will, messing with them. But one of the guys, there's like four or five guys in these suits testing them, and one of them dies. And we find out that apparently there's something wrong with what they're doing so far, and it's causing their minds to burn out very painfully, as we see from this guy writhing in pain. And then we show, uh, Mr. Flowers has shown up with a chip that they've been waiting on. As Cypher's wondering, you know, how can Jacques Renard operate Bishop without these ill effects? He can't find a single other person that can do the same thing that that uh, Jacques Renard can do. So he's trying to figure out why Jacques able to uh, control the suit without being damaged like everyone else is. And so the story ends here. Again, we're in the middle of a storyline. The, the uh, next issue box says, the plot thickens. As we have Mr. Flowers holding the chip out to Cypher, saying, I believe this is what you're waiting for. Again, a very interesting story. It's it's a great storyline. I'm loving what's what's going on. We've got the Bishop storyline from way back in the day, carrying on till now. Uh, Bishop is the, the big baddie of Checkmate, I would, I would say. Because again, he's the one that's been there the longest, I think. Besides Hoover's controlling him. But Bishop's been in your face and he's been a catalyst for a lot of what's going on in Checkmate. And again, we've only got five more issues before this series ends after this one. So we're coming up to the end of the run of Checkmate. So it's interesting to see how they take everything that's going on and wrap it up over the next five issues. But that's going to do it for Checkmate. I'm going to play some commercial breaks and we'll be right back with... Suicide Squad. I don't know, but I have heard. We'll be back after this word. Booster? Hey, bro. Gah! Bats! Booster! Together! Wow, well, this is great. This is just awesome. You never said you and Booster were friends. <laughs> it never came up. A consummate professional like you, friends with a dilettante like Booster? You're both my friends, okay? You're more of a work friend, and Booster is more of a fun friend. What's more fun than fighting crime? Ooh, he's got you there. Hi, this is FKA Jason's son again. I just wanted to take another minute of your time to tell you about his podcast, Silver and Gold. He and his buddy Roy Charlemagne Clary celebrate the DC Comics characters Booster Gold and Captain Adam, issue by issue, and blah, 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 blah. Listen, the real reason you want to listen to the Silver and Gold is their Throwback Thursday episodes, because I'm the star of those shows. Dad and I review the Silver Age Captain Adam stories published by Charlton Comics in the 1960s. You can find the Silver and Gold podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can also follow Dad's Splitting Adam's blog at CaptainAdamBlog.com. We all know the real reason you'll be tuning in is to hear me criticize, uh, I mean, celebrate the Silver Age Captain Adam in our Throwback Thursday episodes. I can't believe Dad roped me into this. Searching for silver and gold If you're alone When you grow old You'll never find comfort in silver and gold The Justice League wouldn't help them So Batman formed a new team These people of power are all looking for something Be it their past Or a purpose 
or simply somewhere to fit in. These are the heroes for a troubled age. They are the Outsiders. We are the Outsiders. covering Mike W. Barr's 1983 series from the very beginning as they face villains no other team can, like Agent Orange, The Force of July, and The Nuclear Family. <laughs> Puns. This is The Outcasters, a Batman and the Outsiders podcast. Look for us with The Huntress podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Or listen at our website, thehunterspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at BatOutcasters. We are the Outcasters because to live outside the law, you must be honest. In 1974, four men literally changed the face of rock and roll forever. Gene Simmons, Peter Chris, Ace Frehley, and Paul Stanley wanted to become the band they never got to see. Over the next 40 plus years, the music, the makeup, the merchandise, and the loyal fan base have propelled KISS to one of rock and roll's elite groups. With KISS heading down their end of the road tour, we thought we would start our journey. Turn it up to 10 because we love it loud. Right Between the Eyes is a podcast all about our favorite band, KISS. We will be covering all eras of KISS with the various albums, studio, live, and compilations, plus album mashups and more. We will also cover solo and band projects from all members, past and present, while also looking at the various bands that have opened for KISS as well. Not to mention all of the fun items in the KISS catalog. TV appearances, long-form videos, merchandise, comic books. Come on, the list goes on and on. Coming in late May, early June 2021 to a podcast platform near you. Follow us on Twitter at RBTE Podcast. Loud. I I want to hear it loud. Right between the eyes. Hey squad mates, now let's take a look at Suicide Squad number 44. The cover date of this was August of 1990. The on-sale date was July 3rd of 1990. The day before Independence Day. Hmm. The cover price was $1. The title of this issue is called Grave Matters. Written, as usual, by John Ostender, but this time he was joined by David M. DeVries. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. Artist, Luke McDonnell, The Magnificent. Letter, Todd Klein. Colorist, Carl Gafford. Cover was done by Luke McDonnell and Jeff Isherwood. Edited by Dan Raspler. And this was reprinted in Suicide Squad, The Phoenix Gambit, Trade Paperback, 2017. So, this cover, this one here, uh, looks like it's going to be a flashback or a, a, a fill-in story, possibly, is what the cover looks like. Uh, the cover, we have our Suicide Squad logo. On the front cover, we have Captain Boomerang in his uh, classic Captain Boomerang attire. 
back behind him, there's a bunch of fairgoers. There's a, we see a roller coaster in the background. There's a a stand that says Captain Boomerang on it, a balloon floating away, and on the ground underneath Captain in front, but underneath Captain Boomerang, we see the Flash laying on the ground defeated. Up to the top left, next to Captain Boomerang, it says Flashback. And it's kind of the Flash logo, of course. So a first look at this cover screams flashback or maybe a story set in the past or something. Now, having said that, McDonald and Isherwood did a fantastic job on this cover. Uh, again, as I said, I prefer, I like the dark, grittier stuff for the Suicide Squad. For my conventional superheroes, I like the more conventional look, the, the four colors I call it you know, bright colors. This to me kind of seems to do a, uh, kind of right in the middle almost. I mean, there is a little bit darker to it, I think, but it does is very much a, a solid, very good superhero cover. In my opinion, it's not as dark as a lot of the covers are in suicide squad, which I like since again, this is as the cover tells us flashback, but this is a nice cover. I do like, I don't like seeing the Flash defeated, of course, because, you know, he's my boy, but they got the Flash on the ground defeated, Captain Boomerang staying over him, Boomerang held in the air, gloating. It's just a great cover, very dynamic. It's beautiful. Now, before I actually begin the story, which begins on the next page, obviously, uh, this story starts off kind of where I wanted my Head Speaks uh, current run to end. Not Head Speaks itself, but currently over in Head Speaks, I'm talking about the power of the atom. And due to delays and probably my mistiming of things, I'm still covering the power of the atom. I'm only up like on issue nine or ten of the series. It's got another eight issues to go, I believe. So another eight months. But I had planned at one point trying to end that series or that run, the power of the atom before this part starts. But due to me not doing things right and all the delays I've had and everything else, uh, this was taking place a little earlier. So that out of the way, sort of. For more on the ad, which I'm going to be talking about here directly, just for a few minutes, uh, check out my Head Speaks podcast where I'm covering Power of the Atom, which leads up to what we're going to talk about now. So now uh, <laughs> we start out with, uh, there's an uh, apartment building and the top, it's one splash panel or splash page. There's a big building on it with a an explosion from one of the windows, just <laughs> glass shattering out. It's a huge explosion. Set on top of that at the bottom part is a the front page from the Daily Planet from Friday, July the 27th of 1990, which is like three weeks after the on-sale dates, but before the cover date of this. Uh, I'm getting lost. Anyways, the price of this, the newspaper is 40 cents for a big metropolitan newspaper. And the headline yells at us, Adam killed. Ray Palmer, famed superhero, killed a mysterious blast. And that story is written by John Ostender and David M. DeVries, which is the staff writer's. And it goes on in, in the caption here, or the story, talking about how Ray Palmer, better known as the uh, Adam, was evidently killed last night by an explosion, which blasted through his apartment after midnight last night. Immediate cause of the blast not known. Give the number 
a film, blah, blah, blah. And I do like that they could have just had blurry lines or whatever here. We actually do see, if you actually look at it, it actually has the start of a story. And it kind of catches you up on what I'm talking about over on my Head Speaks podcast. How he, he made a secret identity known when he left to become, to when he went to the jungles of South America, he returned to America when that race was mysteriously exterminated, which again, uh, I'm talking about over on Head Speaks, and we'll talk more about that in future episodes. So I do like, instead of just giving us, you know, blah, 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 or something, it actually has kind of the the story of the Adam being killed. Uh, and again, spoilers for those who are listening that listens to my head speaks podcast. Uh, oh, we'll get to this at some point, but also on this page, we have uh, the, where it has the other things listed in the newspaper. We have Kim Yell missing fans upset page two. <laughs> Cause as I said, this was by John Austin or somebody else, not by Kim Yell this time. So I do like that. They call out the fact that Kim Yell is not on this issue. In the, the newspaper, it's kind of cool. Uh, Luke McDonald, guest at Artist Gallery, see events. Because again, Luke McDonald's come back to do this issue. He, he's been gone for a while. I, I do like that they call out that, you know, Luke McDonald's back as a guest penciler, basically. Uh, new comic, Todd Klein's Letterman. <laughs> Carl Gafford on the new Colors for the Fall fashion. And let's put Death Back in the Deadlines by Dan Raspler, editorial. So I like how they, when they list the, the, uh, creators of the book and they they can do it in a entertaining and different way. So I do like that. And I'm assuming that's probably John and or David that does that. I I don't know if they leave that at the artist, but seeing how it's type, I I would assume it's one of the writers, but I'm not quite sure how that's handled, but let's go move on the story itself. And then the front page, there's a picture showing smoking from the building of the building above us. So I, I do like, again, I love this as a front page. I remember when I read this, I was like, what? Ray Palmer's dead? No, it can't be. Because again, I, as I said, he's one of my favorite characters. I'd read the Power of the Atom series, which had ended the previous November. I'd go and look on uh, Mike's Amazing World. Actually, I guess it was released uh, September. So not quite a year before this the Adam series had finished. So uh, I didn't like seeing the Adam was killed, but I kept reading. Cause again, I loved suicide squad and I wanted to find out what happened. And cause again, if you don't see a body, they may not be dead. So next page, we have a reporter at the funeral for Ray Palmer. We have Batman green arrow. I think that's black canary. Maybe wonder. We have wonder woman kill for earrings, green arrow, Martian Manhunter, Superman, and a, priest standing over the coffin. There's some more news people in the background recording it. And the reporter talks to John, AKA the Martian Manhunter and asks him, you know, his thoughts. And, you know, again, he gives the usual, you know, he'd be missed. He's a member of the team, a uh, beloved friend. He says that there is talks, of maybe suicide, but that's not the Ray Palmer I know. And I like how, as we're at the funeral with the reporter talking to John's, as we cut to a TV screen, we pull out, we see Amanda Waller watching uh, the funeral as her phone starts ringing. And all of a sudden, you know, he picks up the phone. I'm sorry, she picks up the phone as John is saying, if this was murder, you can be assured the legal take a personal hand in this. And on the phone line, we hear someone say, coming through. And we see somebody 
coming out of the phone line just like Ray Palmer used to do. In large, he's got, he's got a mask on. He's got like a, a black pair of pants, black boots, a black short sleeve shirt, black gloves, a black mask, kind of like the Adam Ware. The, his, he's got blonde hair, it looks like, hanging out the top of the mask, a brown vest on. So the, the mask is very reminiscent of the Adams at this time, as far as the design, not the color scheme, because it's all black. But uh, again, I do like the Adam or whoever that's shrinking comes when they come out of the phone like that. And it shows them actually enlarging very nice touch. And so the news is going on about how uh, they're going to see, they can talk to Gene Loring, his ex-wife and this mysterious uh, guy tells that Amanda to turn it off. And he tells Amanda that the Justice League could be trouble. I know them once they get involved, especially Batman. And Amanda's like, well, they won't get involved. I'll deal with Matt. I'll deal with Max. We'll make it stop. Stop worrying. Ray Palmer's dead. You're the Adam now. So, and this is coming up to an upcoming storyline in the Suicide Squad. Uh, I don't know. Again, I I know that I know what's going on here. I know because I read it. But when I first read this, I wasn't quite sure what was going on. Is this mean? Because I know over in the Power of the Atom series. Uh, I won't go into further detail too much about what happens in the future issues, but before I'm at right now in the show, he's been thinking about maybe giving up Ray Palmer and becoming, you know, a new identity or doing something to get away from publicity. He's kind of gone away from that in the last couple of issues, but that's been there on and off up to this point. So you wonder if you're just reading the power of the atom right now where I'm at, you may be wondering, well, maybe did he decide to give up and, and fake his death and take another identity on or what's going on? Or did something, or is Amanda Waller behind the atom dying or Ray dying? So this new guy become the atom. So a lot of questions on just the first couple of pages here that won't be resolved for over a year. Cause I was double checking. We're on issue 44 of, the Suicide Squad, and the this this the Adam storyline doesn't get resolution in quotes. It's a, again another like three or four issue story that starts in issue fifty nine of Suicide Squad. So it's over a year to go before we get resolution to as to who this really is and what's going on. So, and I, that's one thing I do love about writers doing continuity correctly is that like with John in this book, he's, he's got this story that he's starting out and he's got questions we're asking like, well, who is this? Did they, did a man have something to do with the death of Ray Palmer or is she helping Ray fake his death? What's going on? And that's in this, the new Adam, we're going to call him. He keeps showing up in the book for a while. So, and it's like, say, over a year before John gets around to going into more detail and explaining this whole story. So I do like that that long game that John's playing in this. It's just fantastic. Uh, but meanwhile, we're going to cut away from there. She tells the new Adam to rest up. There's no new missions. Uh, Captain Boomerang and Deadshot have gone to Australia 
because apparently uh, Boomerang's mother passed away. And so Deadshot is taking Boomer Butt home to keep him company, in quotes, babysit him as he goes to his mom's funeral. Uh, so again, so the next page, we've got a nice shot of Boomerang and Floyd in their their civilian clothes. And they're standing outside this rundown shack, a mailbox out front with the, the door open. And Boomerang, and I, I like that Boomerang and Floyd are kind of talking, not mission-wise, just on a, a personal level. Floyd's asking Boomerang, you know, is it odd to be home again? No, he's like, I'd be home again, Boomer Butt. Yeah, listen, mate, make it George Warrior, eh? Well, I'm going to the name after all. And Boomer Butt, I'm going to keep calling him Boomer Butt because that's who he is, or Boomerang. <laughs> it's commonly how he surprised us there because after the invasion happened, I kicked the heck out of Melbourne and all over. He's like, that's pretty much how I left it. And I, he's like, you close to your family, Boom, George? And so we get kind of some backstory here on Captain Boomerang. Uh, he says that his mom was the best of the whole rotten bunch. The rest could just get stuffed. Boomerang goes inside the house where he meets his dad. And, or not he, but where we meet his dad. Uh, Ian and his brother Tom. And his dad's like, oh, I find lob didn't have you. It looks like it, don't it? Too bad you didn't stop in last time he was in Oz. Yeah, mom was alive then. She might like to see you. And Boomerang's like, last time I was here, I was fighting a bloody war. What were you doing besides hiding under the bed? And again, they, you've got a very, uh, a very hostile relationship. Again, they're they're not the greatest family. This isn't the Brady Bunch for any, any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> But I do like that, you know, his dad's like, well, you could have stopped it when you are here last time. And he's like, I wasn't out picking flowers. I, I was fighting in a war against bloody aliens trying to save the world, dad. Sorry, I wasn't good enough for you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Floyd kind of points the spotlight at the elf of the room that, you know, I guess your old dad, your old man, your old man still holds a, Holds your becoming Captain Boomerang against you. He's and Boomerang's like, hey, Dad's always been a bloody bastard to me. Tom was his real pet, even when we were kids. And then we meet one of uh, Boomerang's friends as we get kind of a flashback to George as a kid, and we find out how bad of a home life he had. I guess uh, he talks about how the day that he made friends with this gentleman he's talking with which his name is uh, Mick Wentworth. It was the same day he made a boomerang at school and he brought home all proud of it. And his parents were busy arguing with, I guess his older brother, Tom was uh, going to the big city, I guess. And his dad's like, you know, you should stay here and help the family. What's too good for us? Kind of a uncle, uncle Owen vibe. From Star Wars, Luke Skywalker. No, you don't need to go to the sea because they here and help us. We need the help. Kind of saying, you know what? Why don't you stand and give us a hand? We need the help. And the mom's like, I'll leave the boy alone. He, he's doing the right thing. He's a bright lad. He deserves a chance at the big smoke. And meanwhile, George, all proud of his boomerang, trying to interrupt the conversation, you know, and hey, look what I did. You know, the teacher's proud of it. And, and again, his, his dad is very much of a jerk. And 
boomerang, uh, George, little George finally gets through to him and he's like, I made this a school today. Teacher gave me good marks, top marks for it. Want to see it? His dad's not really. And his wife's like, I in. All right. Show what you got then. Is this all? Nothing but a done ab- Apple toy. And he, he, George walks out saying, you bloody dingo. <laughs> and he gets his mom's berating his dad. And we couldn't have been night, not berating, but calling him out on his, his, his uh, stupidity, his, his, whatever you want to call it. You know, tell him it should have been nice. Would have hurt you to be nice to the kid. And Boomerang's dad's like, ah, it's a tough world out there. Better learn now. So again, we find that, and it kind of goes to the whole life philosophy is that nature or nurture, what makes a person a bad person? Is it the way they were raised? Is it genetics? And we kind of find out here that, again, this doesn't really answer the question because, again, the dad's not that great of a person. So as far as genetics, he doesn't, at least half of the genetics is kind of messed up, it seems. And as far as the nurture, he's not getting much nurturing from his dad. And from the looks, I'm sure his mom gives him some, but that negative influence from your father figure, especially for a young boy can, can affect you. It can cause you to either, you know, go one way or the other. I mean, growing up myself, I had a, a bit of an ass hat for a dad or stepdad again, much like George had a stepdad and he was a bit of a jerk. And in, and I know some people, you know, some like school boys and stuff, you know, couldn't find out their fathers are mean to them or very strict like this. So when you have a, a jerk off for a father, usually, I mean, yes, everybody's different. There's different extremes, but most people either go to one or two extremes, they either realize or not realize, but they think that's what you should be. And so they, they embrace that lifestyle and become a jerk themselves. Or like me, they, they see that that's not a good thing and they try to turn away from it and run the opposite direction. So a lot of, I think where George ends up and him becoming Captain Boomerang, as we're going to find out here in the story, comes from, I, I think, having this stepfather that's a bit of a jerk. I mean, if, if dear old dad had been a little more accommodating and actually looked at his boomerang and spent some time with the boy instead of being upset that his older son was leaving, then he may have not gotten the trouble he gets into next, which we're going to find out about here. Uh, so George goes out and he's throwing his boomerang in the air. And I like this. He's like, good thing to play catch with when they've got no one else to play with. So he's throwing the boomerang. It's coming back to him again. Again, if you're an only child or if you don't, your brother doesn't play with you and you don't have any other friends, a boomerang is a good toy. You can throw it. It'll come right back to you. If not, it's a stick, but that's another story entirely. So as he's throwing the boomerang, uh, this new guy, Nick or Mick, Mick, Mick comes up to him and, and uses a slingshot and knocks the boomerang down. And, as George is showing the new kid, you know, I'm taking my boomerang, I made it myself. That's a bloody only a novel would use. What a prawn. And I had to look up to be sure. Cause I wasn't quite positive, not being Australian, but apparently an abo. I may be mispronouncing that. I've got an Australian friend. I'll have to ask him next time I talk with him, uh, that I do my, uh, he's on my Starbright project podcast. I do have my wife, but no story. I've talked to him about that, but apparently abo, is a 
a derogatory term for an indigenous Australian. So it's not something, you know, you'd want to go home and say to your mom. So if any kids are listening, don't use this word in public. <laughs> in fact, I probably shouldn't be using it as much myself because, again, people pick it up. And anyways, so it's not a great word. But again, these guys are using it like it's nothing, these kids. So, and, and I can relate that to here in America. I mean, the N-word. You get some people that use that like it's just an ordinary word where it's a real in reality, it's a derogatory term and you don't say it in polite company in quotes. So, and I'm sure it's kind of the same way there. I'm sure that is the same as saying the N word here. So, and as George's new friends laughing at about his new toy, they love to see this bird, uh, kookaburra is kind of talking and, and la- it sounds like he's laughing and Nick's like, see, even the bird, if there's laughing at you, and George is upset again because his dad's dismissed him and didn't want anything to do with his new toy that he made. This new kid he met, you know, making fun of him. Now this bird's laughing at him. So he throws the boomerang, kills the bird, knocks it out of the tree. And the boomerang comes back to George and he captures it. And the, the other kid's like, it's dead. You killed it. What a ripper. And so uh, he was very pleased with his new friend killing a bird with the boomerang. So these two kids became fast friends, it seems. And again, they they weren't the best of people. The next page down, we if it was a TV show, we would see a bunch of these young kids, teens, doing a bunch of bad stuff. Look like they're setting a fire, smoking cigarettes, pushing people around. And again, George says that both his parents disapproved of Mick. But as far as he was concerned, they could get stuffed. And uh, Mick, I can't remember between Nick and Mick, but it's Mick. Because he's Australian, so of course it is. Uh, Mick is saying that yeah, his mom's not too bad. She bailed him out and helped him out quite a bit. So, and Nick goes on to tell, I'm sorry, Mick goes on to tell him a story about how when they were 18, they were at the store. And apparently, Boomerang is at the, I'm sorry, George was at the counter buying something. Uh, looks like he's buying boomerangs. Meanwhile, his buddy Mick is stealing some cigarettes and the store clerk sees it. So he's trying to stop him. And it looks like, I think he grabs George and Mick comes over and just socks the store clerk and they get away. Well, they start to get away. They run away. And as they're running away, the cop almost catches with Mick. So boomerang throws his boomerang at the sh- cops, sheriff, whatever's leg knocks him over. And as they're running away, Mick's like, brilliant shot, mate. And boomerang er, George is like, hell, I was aiming for his bloody head. <laughs> but again, they, they've been, so this shows that George has, before he even came, Captain Boomerang wasn't the, in quotes, best of people. So, and then we find out that his dad, stepdad, whatever, is ready to hand him over to the cops after that whole throwing the boomerang and, and stealing cigarettes and all that. But his mom, again, his mom defended him as a good mom does, though maybe she shouldn't have defended him so much because, again, his dad's like, you know, maybe he should go to jail. Maybe, you know, make him wake up and realize, you know, what he's doing. And. Uh, boomerang George is like, oh, maybe I'll go to Auburn. Maybe Tom can help me get a job. 
His dad's like, you keep away from Tom. I already talked with him and he wants nothing to do with you. And then George's mom turns to her husband and tells him, you know, he needs to lay off the boy that he, she's, she's had a gut full of him and a stinking attitude towards his own son. And he's like, my son, I'll give you my son, you bloody. And he calls her a, a bike, which I believe is another derogatory term as he slaps her. And George, I mean, his mom's defending him, so he's not going to pep for that. So he goes over and he just knocks his dad to the floor. And his mom, oh, you're going to have to go to Auburn now. Auburn? Melbourne. Sorry, he's in Australia, not America. Got to go to Melbourne. And says so she should give him some money to help him get by for the time being. And so he's held up there for a week before he meets his mom again. And she brings him a plane ticket to a place in the States called Central City. Hmm, that sounds familiar. And apparently uh, there's an old friend there named W.W. Wiggins who runs a small toy factory. Uh, he, think she th- he thinks that he can help sell Boomerang, or sorry, George's Boomerang. And so George, Captain Boomerang tells us that he took off. And that's the last time he saw his mom alive. So you figure that, and that's got to be hard on anybody, you know, leaving your mom. I mean, his dad's not much of a loss and apparently his brothers won't take his calls or anything. So, but yeah, leaving your mom who she seems to be a caring and loving mother, even if she did marry some jerk, uh, she did care for her son and she tried to help George out the best she could. So uh, that is hard on him leaving his mom like that. And then we meet uncle, what did you call him again? Uncle Walt. He calls him Uncle Walt, which is W.W. Wiggins. And we find out that Wiggins, Uncle Walt, was the one who created Captain Boomerang, the identity to help sell these boomerangs they're trying to sell. Because again, you got to remember, this story was written back in the early 90s. So this was probably taking place in the 70s, I'm guessing. So they didn't have all the fancy toys that we, especially we have nowadays, but, but even then a boomerang to American kid apparently didn't seem that good of a thing. I don't know. I would have, I never had one, but I don't know. I'm just trying to think. I mean, boomerangs are interesting toys, but again, if you, if you could do it right, you know, as he demonstrates, he's throwing several boomerangs at a time and catching them. And I hear him on a page 15, the audience just look at him like, Crickets chirping. You're like, mm-hmm. Okay. And your point. And a kid out in the audience is like, I think they're stupid. My dad bought one and didn't do nothing. And Captain Boomerang, who he is Captain Boomerang at this point, he's wearing the, the old school costume. It's like, oh, it's because your dad's a bloody stupid bugger who couldn't spit in the ocean if he's standing in it. And the boy's dad's there. And he's like, is he? Bet he hits you in the mouth. He's, the kid's like, get him, pa. You want a bonnet? Come on. I've had a few yanks. You can all stub and Uncle Walt's pushing him off stage like, you need to get out of here. You need to cool off. And George, Captain Boomerang's like, you know, I've had enough of this. I want out of here. And Walt sends Captain Boomerang to walk down the midway to enjoy himself, let people see the costume, maybe, you know, drum up some, some people to come watch the show. And as he's walking along, uh, we see there's a booth for the Flash. Was, Meet the Flash. He's signing autographs, and some I guess some rich guy comes pushing through the crowd. He's like, "Get out of my way! You don't know who I am." And Boomer's looking and sees his, his guy's wallet's in the back pocket. So Boomerang comes over and sl- gently tries to sneak the wallet out, and he's like, "No one sees this. I'm gonna get away some money." But unfortunately, 
again, the boot was right in front of the Flash's booth. He happens to see it. So he gets up to go after this guy that stole this guy's wallet. He's like, stop, put that wallet down. And Boomerang, through the Boomerang, hit the Flash, knocking him to the ground. And this is kind of where we see on the cover of this issue where Boomerang was standing over the Flash knocked out. We have the Flash on the ground. Uh, Boomerang's not standing right on top of him. He's back a little bit. Everyone's kind of, you know, surprised. Do you see that? He beat the Flash. Captain Boomerang beat the Flash. And I think it's the same kid that was, was calling the Boomerang stupid earlier saying, cool. Again, for another TV show, we would have a, another montage set to music showing how he's tied the Flash to a Boomerang, showing Boomerang stealing things. You've got Boomerangs flowing around all over the place. Talks about how he made some trick Boomerangs. And the paper star called him Digger because he's from Australia. But like, yeah, I, I didn't care. The world heard of me. <laughs> so that's where the, and that's what he goes by mostly nowadays is Digger. And that's where the term Digger came from is because he's from Australia and someone in the newspaper started calling him that. So, and then back outside the church and is George, AKA Captain Boomerang and uncle Walt and Floyd get back to the church. And I keep calling, uh, Floyd's dad is stepdad. Cause I thought I said stepdad somewhere, but apparently it's supposed to be his dad. He starts yelling at Walt, tell him, get out of here. We don't need you around here. And he's like, what are you talking about? Ask him, go ahead and ask the bloody bastard how well he knew your mom. And so Walt gives a little story about how during the war, I had met this young woman at a bar. Uh, she's talking about how she was married to a young man she didn't really love, but she had to marry him. They got well enough, but he went off to war and she was young and bored. Had no fun. She was stuck in Australia somewhere. And here he was. And so apparently the two of them hooked up and had a a night of fun, which lasted more than a night. Because again, Boomerang's like, all right, so mom messed around during some sun on the ward. What's, what's going on? So what? And I think it was Walt saying, it didn't end with the war, son. I came through as a salesman for the toy company. The one I took over later, got back in contact with your mom. We had one last fling. But he says it felt cheap, desperate. Again, it wasn't the same thing as during the war. Again, neither one of them are good people, in my opinion. I got my own personal thoughts on that, but we're not going to get into that at this point. But he was going to go back to the States when uh, Betty, uh, Boomerang's mom, said she wants to go back to the States with him. And she tells him that she's pregnant with his child. So we find out that Uncle Walt is actually Daddy Walt. <laughs> and he's like, I felt bad for it, but it wasn't feasible. I just couldn't do it. And so this is kind of why Boomerang's dad has always been so gruff with him, has been so, so much of a jerk towards him. Yes, his dad is that type of person, but also we find out that not only did uh, Boomerang's mom cheat on her husband with this guy, but Boomerang is their illegitimate love child. So it doesn't make it right, but one could understand why George's dad, uh, Captain Boomerang's dad, has always been so hostile towards him because uh, George is just a reminder that his wife cheated on him with another guy. And so speaking as a man who's married, I can understand how that could be very 
problematic. I mean, if you're a good person, you would be take the kid on anyways and raise it as your own and, and love it no matter what. But some people don't quite have that in them. I mean, he, he raised them. So, I mean, at least he took that step, but he's always kind of held who George's real father is against him, which wasn't fair to the kid. I mean, honestly, it's, he didn't ask for his mom to do that. So he didn't be asked to be conceived in a, you know, a forbidden romance, if you will. So, so George is just now finding this out or boomerang. And he's like, so what am I now? Australian, a yank or what? And he's the only one those for sure is in a pine box. So again, it may not, I guess they're not quite sure who the dad is. It could be Walt could be the dad or it could, because again, the war was over. So George's dad was home at that point. So assuming that his mom and dad were making thank you punky at least once in a while, he could really be boomerang's dad or it could be this American guy. No one knows. And like he says, the only person that would know is in a pine box and she may not know depends on, I mean, she's the only one to know who she was having sex with when, and it depends on, I mean, if she was having sex with both the guys in the same time frame, you, you never know. So, Floyd's like, oh, you're an orphan like me. You what you made of yourself. Let's get some drinks and get out of here. Or haven't you had enough of home? And George Boomerang's like, yeah, you're a good maid, Lawton, but you talk too bloody much. Let's go where loved. Back to Mama Walla. And so that story ends there. So again, this was, it was a flashback issue because we, we got kind of Captain Boomerang's origins. And I know they talked about his origins, how he became Captain Boomerang over in the Flash comics, but I don't think they've ever touched on this much of his origin before. So I do like it. It's a great story. It's a great, great uh, look at Captain Boomerang, seeing what makes him tick. And like I've said before, that's one thing John does fantastic in this book is he takes these second and third rate characters and he actually fleshes them out, gives them origins, gives them motivation and makes you actually feel for him. Because, I mean, Captain Boomerang's been a, a butt wipe his entire career, always fighting the Flash, being a bad guy, uh, getting on Mama Waller's bad side. But now we find out where he came from and what made Captain Boomerang who he is. So it... Makes him a little more human, if you will. I, don't know, I thought it was a great issue. I say it doesn't advance the, the main suicide score, main suicide story along any, except for introducing the new Adam, setting up that, that upcoming subplot. But it does give us a big chunk of Boomerang's origin, which I really like. So uh, what do you guys think? Let me know. Send me an email to taskforcex at headcastnetwork.com. And if you want, you can call and leave a message on the Headcast voicemail line. Uh, feel free to give us a call. That phone number is area code 559-500-3182. Again, it's 559-500-3182. Give me a call. Give me your thoughts on this issue. What do you guys think? Also, if you like what we're doing here, uh, visit patreon.com slash headcastnetwork. Uh, throw a few bucks in the tin. But that's it until next month. We're back with Checkmate and Suicide Squad. Until then, squadmates dismissed.
Thank you for listening to another great episode of Task Force X. I can also be found rambling on my main headcast of Head Speaks, where I rant and rave about movies, comics, geek stuff, and whatever is bugging me. Mate, you just out crazy the Joker. <laughs> well, I tried Boomer, but anyways, my home on the internet is at headspeaks.com. H-E-A-D-S-P-E-A-K-S dot C-O-M. Links to my blog, which contain follow-up information to this and every headcast, can be found there. Both Task Force X and Headspeaks are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at headspeaks.com under Headcasts. Please feel free to email me any questions, comments, or concerns to taskforcex at headspeaks.com. And if you want to record a message, you can send it to me at taskforcex at headspeaks.com, and I'll play it on the air. I'm also on Facebook at taskforcex, and also on Google+, you can look for taskforcex under people and pages. All titles and characters discussed are owned and copyrighted by DC Comics. I claim no ownership to the Suicide Squad, Checkmate, or Task Force X. I'm just a big fan wanting to spread the Task Force X love with everyone else. Uh, DC Comics can be found on the web at dccomics.com. Be sure to visit your local comic shop and look for Suicide Squad and Checkmate Comics. And while you're there, see what else they have that may interest you. <laughs> well, make sure you join us here next time for another fun-filled headcast from your friendly neighborhood, Brotherhead. In the meantime, I'll see you in the funny pages. Yippee!